It's the My Michelle Live podcast. My Michelle Live, Psy Tech Talk, taking the God story to a geeky place. Here's Michelle. Hey, thanks for making My Michelle Live part of your week, whether it's science and technology, which we'll be taking on today, sports, entertainment, news and views, whatever the topic, we look into the current stories and even a little deeper for a message of hope for what we call the God story. And that is no exception today. We're going to be looking at a new study a team of scientists from the U.S., the U.K., Sweden, Canada, came together and analyzed an ancient polar bear. Now, they estimated that it was a 100,000-year-old polar bear. But what they found is a wow moment in programming and adaptation. And it may even give us a little insight evidence of design and a designer, hence the God story. And we're going to look at it with a man that I couldn't think of anyone better to talk about this subject than our good old friend, Fuzz. We're going to get fuzzy today. And now, reasons to believe. Yes, some reasons to believe, biochemist and now newly appointed president CEO of Reasons to Believe. He's the author of books like Humans 2.0, a fabulous book, The Cell's Design and a Designer. This is the time for a God story today, my friend. Fuzz, good to have you with us again. Michelle, thanks for inviting me to be on your show. It's always a lot of fun to to chat with you and talk about new discoveries in science and, you know, what they mean about the reality of God's existence and even more importantly, how God really cares for his creation and cares for us. That's kind of your bread and butter there at Reasons to Believe in. What a way to live, to look through science and just, it's like reading pages from the Bible. I don't, and I don't mean to be sacrilegious, but God does reveal himself through the book of nature. So looking at science at times is like leaning from God God's word in, in, in a way. Yes, exactly. In fact, we just had a workshop here at Reasons to Believe where we invited a number of biblical scholars and theologians to interact with us on this idea of dual revelation in the two books metaphor. And so in things like the Belgic Confessions, the confessors actually acknowledge the idea that God has revealed himself to us through scripture, but also through the record of nature. And the record of nature is a a metaphorical book in which we can not only see evidence for God's fingerprints, but begin to understand a bit about God's character and God's nature. And very clearly, I think God's love and care for his creation. So we can, uh, a way that I would put it is science makes God's word come to life. It makes it uh, tangible to us. Now, getting to this story, you remember the old story, the old nursery rhyme, the Gold lead locks and the three bears one with yes. mama bear, papa bear, baby bear. This story might actually be great, great grandpa bear and, yeah. <laughs> that the scientists analyzed. And it revealed a, a massive admixture yeah. uh, between yeah. polar bears well, you know, uh, and brown bears. Yeah. And this is a polar bear specimen that they nicknamed Bruno. You love how scientists do things like that. And it turns out when they looked at the genetic material, it was a female, <laughs> these interesting twists. Did they ask what but, the pronouns were? 
What's that? Did they ask the bear their, his, the preferred pronouns? Yeah, that's right. What they discovered is that the genome was very much about, a, it was a polar bear genome, but it didn't fit within the range of genetic diversity that we see in modern day polar bears. So they looked at this as being a member of an ancient population of polar bears. But what was interesting is that when they compared this genome from Bruno with that of brown bears, what they discovered is that it looks as if about 100,000 years ago, brown bears and polar bears hybridized. And as a result of that, that introduced polar bear genes into the brown bear genomes. And they wouldn't have been able to detect this if it wasn't for the discovery of Bruno and, and the characterization of Bruno's genome, because that event actually impacted all brown bears alive today. So all these, all the brown bears alive today have that polar bear signature, but you wouldn't know that. You would just think this is a brown bear genetic signature until you have the DNA sequence from Bruno. So it was really a surprise in many respects to, to see that result. So does that mean that they came from the same and then they diverged? Yeah, there's two ways to look at that. From an evolutionary perspective, the argument would be that at some point in the past, brown bears and polar bears shared an evolutionary ancestor, but that was apparently in, in, in the distant past. And from a creation model perspective, I would say that brown bears and polar bears are two distinct species, but because of the universal nature of our genetic material, the universal nature of biochemistry, cell biology, that in a sense, you could think of genetic systems as being modules that you can plug and play from one organism into another. And so that's how I would interpret the results as an old earth creationist is that these were distinct species that were able to hybridize because of these similar similarities in their design, if you will, that allowed them to interbreed. Interesting, though, we have this ability to get what we need when we need it, so yeah. to speak. And while we have yet to see a a link, those missing links and or many missing links in the evolutionary model, what we have seen again and again, it's been reproduced, it's observable, mm -hmm. is the microbiology, the way that we're able to change and to adapt. An example that I recently read was on the giraffe. Now, we know that yeah. the giraffe has been a classic example of adaptation, evolution, mm -hmm. right? Microevolution. Their long necks, they consider that a sign that they were able to stretch and those with longer necks were able to survive and eat the higher leaves. And it's a direct result of, they say, selection. But do we have any evidence that giraffes didn't have necks? Not really, but we do have differing changes within giraffes. There was a Discocurix zyze that was from what they say the early Miocene period, and these had these thick boned craniums and disc-like headgear and a series of cervical vertebrae with extremely thick centra. 
pretty much the most complicated head-neck joints in mammals known to date. And they say that it was so that they could butt heads because that was how they showed their dominance. They, that's a different giraffe, but yet still a giraffe. And it, for me, it's really fascinating because we see these crazy, amazing changes within species. Yeah. And to me, I'm a I'm an old earth creationist and I'm skeptical about aspects of the evolutionary paradigm. But as you're pointing out, Michelle, I'm not skeptical about every, about all of evolution. I think there's very good evidence that microevolution and speciation takes place. And the way I see this is that this is part of God's providential care for his creation, that God has created these creatures to live in an ever-changing world. And instead of just leaving them to their own devices, has imbued within the creation itself this capacity to change and to adapt as, again, the environment changes and adapts. And for example, with regard to the, the brown bear, polar bear, you know, interbreeding that took place, they think that this was actually happening at a time where there was climactic instability and that the brown bear and the polar bear ranges were budding into each other. And mm -hmm. so this hybridization took place. And interestingly enough, the, the, there's no evidence that brown bear genes went into polar bears. It's only one, one direction. Wow. And the thought is that, with, that because polar bears are so hyper-specialized and adapted for essentially living on Arctic sea ice and hunting sea mammals, that any kind of genetic input outside of the polar bear population would probably be eliminated by natural selection because it wouldn't be advantageous. But brown bears are generalists. They live in all kinds of different environments. They eat all kinds of different foods. And so during a time of climactic instability, getting fresh genetic input from polar bear hybridization actually probably helped brown bears to survive during that time of climactic change. And so you could see this as being that natural selection and even hybridization are means by which God has instituted these mechanisms in nature that allow species to survive, that there is a care for the creation that's seen in these kind of processes. But again, just because we can see microevolution, speciation happening, doesn't mean that evolution can create and innovate and introduce novelty. I think that those are places where a creator must be involved. And so we're not seeing, we're, in other words, we're not seeing a brown bear become a giraffe. But no. what we are seeing is this amazing adaptation, uh, morphology, if you will. And it sounds to me that it's not only programming, what's in our programs, but also planning. So I see another stage of divine intervention, if you will. If we're looking at a time frame where climactic change necessitates a change in an animal, there's not just the programming that can allow for thicker skin or fluffier wool on their bodies or fur on their bodies. It also requires some planning as though an orchestration, if you will. And I find that really fascinating. What are your thoughts? Yeah, yeah. To me, again, it's remarkable that two distinct species could hybridize. And that's possible because of 
the shared biological designs that we see. And in a sense, when you have a system that can respond to changes in the environment, you plan it, you design it to be in that way. And maybe a, an example that might help people is think about a thermostat, right? A thermostat is this system ah. that's been designed to control basically the furnace and the air conditioning in your home. And so if the temperature gets too hot, either the, the heater kicks off or the air conditioning might kick on and vice versa. If the room gets too cold, the air conditioning will kick off or the heater might kick on. And so what happens is that even though the outside environment is changing quite dramatically in terms of its temperature in that room, it's a fairly constant and comfortable temperature range, but it's been, the room has been designed in that way where you've got this control mechanism that you've find ahead of time to anticipate what's going to happen outside in the outside environment. So you could see microevolution and speciation exactly in those terms, that this is part of God's providential care for his creation, that, that he instituted these designs into organisms because he knew that they were going to be in this ever-changing world. And this is, again, a way to, to keep them to make the species robust and survivable. Wow. That's an interesting analogy, actually, with, with our thermostats. Technology change a little, adapt. Alexa, for example, can learn. You wrote the book Humans 2.0, so you are up in the know about crazy innovations that can tweak itself or adapt. I've thought of older technology like aquatic cars or flying cars. That was a thing. But those things were built into the design. I can't think of a single piece of technology that becomes something that it wasn't. Can you? No, I can't. Yeah. So that's a great, again, another great analogy is there, there are technology is able to adapt, at least very sophisticated technology, but it's not able to reinvent itself. And so to me, that's really where I am skeptical about the claims of evolutionary biologists that the totality of life's history can be explained exclusively through evolutionary mechanisms. And by the way, there's a growing number of evolutionary biologists who would essentially agree that we've got a really good understanding of microevolution and speciation, but we really don't have a good understanding of how biological novelty would originate. This is one of the outstanding questions in evolutionary biology. In fact, there's now a call among some evolutionary biologists for what they refer to as the extended evolutionary synthesis, hmm. where they are saying evolutionary theory is incomplete, that, it, that we don't have mechanisms to explain novelty. And so they're searching for those mechanisms. As somebody who's an old earth creationist, I don't think they're going to find them. But this is even, a, again, a recognition on the part of people that would have maybe a different worldview than you and I, Michelle, who are recognizing that there seems to be limits in terms of what the evolutionary mechanisms we know about can do. And are these unknown evolutionary mechanisms going to ever be discovered? I question that. But again, even people that wouldn't share our worldview are beginning increasingly to recognize there's a, there, that evolutionary theory at minimum is incomplete. 
So if uh, especially Darwinian evolution just really isn't holding up to science anymore uh, in that, if we have to question that, we have to question some of the other choices that we make outside of science that are based on that and really question our worldview. But something that ties into what we were just talking about, the programming in technology, that technology that can adapt only adapts within its programming, what it was designed to do. An aquatic car doesn't all of a sudden turn, we don't have transformers. And if we do have transformers, they don't become something other than what they were designed to do. If it wasn't in their design, they're not going to become a blender and pop out margaritas. It's just not going to happen. But we can see that in uh, in technology, there's this thing called biomimicry that you and I have mm -hmm. talked about before. Everything that we see in technology already exists and already existed in nature. There is nothing that we have that you don't already see in nature in one way or another. So with an incredible consistency throughout the universe and throughout our planet and in biology and in nature, we are not, we do not see a single example of anything that crosses outside of its programming. And I think it's pretty fascinating when we look at it that way. Yeah. One of the things that I find really mind-blowing in some respects is this interplay between biology and human technology. And in fact, this was this interplay was something that inspired William Paley to develop the watchmaker argument oh. for God's existence, where he said, when we look at biological systems, it looks like the things that we would build. It looks like the things that we would design. It has the properties of something that was the work, the handiwork of a designer. And so right away, Paley was, as we were developing technology, was beginning to recognize that becomes a very powerful framework to actually think about biological systems. And in my book, The Cell's Design, I make what I call the watchmaker prediction, where I argue that if indeed biological systems are the work of a mind, that when we invent new technologies as human designers, what we're going to discover is that those new techno that those technologies already existed in nature. We just weren't able to recognize them as such because we hadn't invented that technology. And time again, we're seeing that prediction actually come to pass, that prediction actually be becoming fulfilled. And then the other, as you mentioned, biomimicry, it goes the other way as well, where biological systems are inspiring new technology. And that to me is really an odd scenario in an evolutionary framework, because the way evolutionary biologists envision evolution is that it's a, it produces systems that are cobbled together taking existing designs and modifying them to create new designs that are inherently suboptimal, inherently flawed. And if that's the way in which biology was created, then as an engineer, why in your right mind would you ever <laughs> turn to those kind of designs to create new technology? But if biology is the work of a creator, then it makes perfect sense to copy those designs and some of the most exciting advances in engineering today are coming in biomimicry, where we're literally are copying these designs from biology 
And this leads to these breakthroughs that would otherwise be impossible. Yeah, some pretty amazing, mind-blowing things. And yet it's right there in creation. It's already been designed. It's And luckily, God's not calling in those patents, I'm just saying. But it reminds <laughs> me of Ecclesiastes 1.9, God story, Bible, right there. There's nothing new under the sun. Yeah. There is nothing yeah. new under the sun. I wanted to take this into the human realm and talk about... X-Men, for example. Now, you and I are both kind of superhero geeks. Yeah. Okay, so we're just going to admit that right there. Intelligent, being a doctor in biology, author of many books, but we're still superhero geeks. It's just the way it is. And so we're going to get all X-Many and talk about some of the amazing things, even in, bio in biology, in uh animals, even in people to a degree, we've been able to morph a little bit. And that's a bit about what we've been talking about with the giraffe, with this great grandpa bear, that there's some morph ability within nature. How much of how how much can people morph? We see, we can take it back to we're all one race. There isn't races of people because we can look into our genes and see that we all hold those, what, seven markers of humanity, whether it's curly hair or it's elongated eyes or whatever these things that we try to attribute to a quote-unquote race, they're within every people group on the planet, correct? Yeah, that's right. The, there are regional differences that we see among human beings that we could explain through microevolutionary processes, but at the end of the day, genetically, we all are human beings. We all have it or trace our origin back to a singular origin. And the first people probably look very much like African people groups today because humanity originates near, near the equator in an equatorial region okay. of the world. And people in Africa are perfectly designed to live in that particular environment. And anthropologists believe that as humans began to migrate into different parts of the world where the environment was different, much different than an equatorial environment, there are these microevolutionary changes that introduce regional differences into humans, but that these are really largely superficial differences that fundamentally we're all the same. In fact, anthropologists marvel at, at how the genetic unity that we see in human beings is that there's a much less genetic diversity for 7 billion people on the planet than there is for a group of mountain gorillas in Africa. But that group shows a much greater diversity. And that indicates that we had a fairly recent origin and that we all, again, are, in a sense, we're all Africans under the skin, as I've heard it, it's, it's said by anthropologists. And yeah, the, our differences are superficial, but I see that as part of God's providential care. So for example, if you have people moving into northern latitudes, where it's a very cold environment and minimal sunlight, having lighter pigmented skin, having longer noses, more compact barrel-shaped bodies actually are cold adaptations that allow humans to survive in those environments uh, much better. But in an equatorial environment, those body designs and aren't necessarily going to be optimal. So we, but we have this ability again to, through microevolution to, to adapt as human beings to different 
parts of the world, which allowed us to, to multiply and fill the earth as God commanded us. I'll tell you another story that came out this week in the journal Frontiers in Psychology from Cambridge researchers studying cognitive behavior and the brain. They were looking at people with this dyslexia and what this says to me is that you know, we do have these differences things like dyslexia is an example but we look at it as a negative and yet they're saying this might actually be a kind of a superpower what it's our x-men ability right yeah. that what they say is that people with dyslexia have a specialized ability to explore the unknown, and it may have played a fundamental part throughout history in helping humanity to continue and survive and make it through difficult things, that this adaptation to changing environments played a crucial role in survival. And I found that fascinating because, in a way, we are X-Men. We all have these yeah. abilities to do what we were meant to do. And it says to me that every single person, the way you were created, plays a crucial role. You may not realize how important you are. Someone with dyslexia may think, oh, man, I'm just, there's something wrong with me, and I don't belong. But in reality, we may not realize what a crucial role they played in helping their environment and the people around them. I think it's fascinating. Yeah, and you're bringing up a really important point is that th there are people, for example, on the autistic spectrum who are brilliant people that see the world differently than other people see the world, that they are able to innovate and, and mm. develop new things that, that, you know, others who aren't on that spectrum aren't able to do. Well, the founder and, of Reasons to Believe is outspoken of huh? being on the spectrum. <laughs> Yeah, and look exactly. At what... And your point is really very well made in the sense that, you know, these mutational changes that take place actually very well may allow people to have capabilities that the average person doesn't have and contribute to, to the betterment of the world that we live in ways that would be impossible apart from these genetic changes that take place. I you think know, there's a scientific I'm phrase really for that. concerned about some of the implications of it being able to do gene editing on human beings is that hmm. in our quote unquote wisdom, we may decide that certain uh -huh. genetic changes are actually something that should be eliminated from oh. the human gene pool. Wow. And the cost of doing that is that we may actually weed out certain genetic changes that could actually be incredibly beneficial to humanity. And there's going to, there's potentially a misuse of genetic engineering and gene therapy that's a wonderful advance wow. in the sense that it holds promise to treat people again with debilitating genetic diseases the line between what is a genetic disease and what is a a, an, an, a new capability for human beings is a very fine line and we want to be very careful about how we broach that yeah i was going to say there's a scientific phrase for this so try to wrap your head around this one god don't make no junk so there you go but uh, I wanted to, in our final time together, talk about humanity. Now, 
And what isn't in our programming, what we aren't seeing. Nature has endowed us with these extraordinary and sometimes even bizarre abilities to morph or change or adapt. And they seem to be useful, all things working together for good, so to speak. So why aren't we seeing nature rise up and fill the need for people's bodies to match their quote unquote identities? Yeah, I'm not quite sure I know what you're driving at there, Michelle. Maybe help me a little bit more. Yeah, we see that if there is a need in nature, in our programming, we are, nature seems to adapt and change. And now as people have in most recent years and in almost an epic level for children have felt that their biology doesn't match who they are. So if their sex doesn't match their biology or what they were assigned at birth. And so you would think that if this is a legitimate need, that our biology would have anticipated and uh, all of a sudden we would sprout things that weren't there before. Things would fall off if they're not needed. And I guess what I'm driving at is that's not happening. We don't really see that happen. And is that because we can look back to what is it that we were really programmed for? I know this is controversial, but I think it, it does speak to a bigger issue, Fuzz. Yeah, yeah, I understand your point now. Sorry, sorry, I just wasn't. <laughs> it does. You know uh, that in our conversations, let me let me just let me just let our audience know. Fuzz and I have been friends for a long time. We've been on the air for years together, and he knows that sometimes things come from left field with me. It's there is not a list of these are the questions we're going to take on. We just open the mic and boom, we let it go. It, it can happens. be a wild ride sometimes, but that's what makes it. A lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think to your point is that if indeed you, you see these kind of, of issues with sexual orientation, gender identity, that that I think to your point that you would expect microevolution to weed that out of our population because ultimately our gender differences and our sexual desires are meant to actually propagate our species. It's if and so there's a reproductive cost associated with people that have same-sex attraction or who are struggle with their gender identity, there should be a reproductive cost that we wouldn't expect those kinds of issues to be fairly, very prominent in our population. So from a biological standpoint, it's, it's hard to imagine that the prevalence of same-sex attraction and the prevalence of gender confusion in, in, in struggling with gender identity would be that high, given the, again, the reproductive costs that it, we would face as a species if that was the case. So you see that there's not a consistency with nature. And right. that's where I want to bring it back to our worldview. Your worldview matters. And even how you base science origins, where we came from, how we got here, if there is purpose, if there's a designer, and who that designer is, all plays into your worldview. And if your worldview is inconsistent with nature, with science, 
truly. If your worldview butts heads with logic, then you might want to reexamine your your worldview. And I would argue, and I know that the purpose of Reasons to Believe is to stand on the side of a biblical worldview, which has continuity in science and nature, in humanity and civics, in the way we conduct ourselves, in our families, in, our, in the way we view our bodies. Everything lines up. And if it does, sweetheart, it is worth looking into because your entire forever rests on that worldview. Foz, I want to give you the final word. Boom. Yeah. To me, I think the theme that, you know, has run through today's conversation really is the fact that God cares for us and that he has created us, but he, through his providential care, has put in place these mechanisms in creation so that creation can be sustained, that creation can thrive and flourish. And, and it's true for human beings. And so if, if this is the way the creator has built the world, then we have to think that for each of us as individuals, that, that creator too is cared, it cares for us, that he has providentially provided for us and that he has made us in a way that he has desired because we have something to contribute to the world and for those of us who are Christians to the body of Christ. And so your statement that God doesn't make any junk is really, I think, absolutely profound and that what we may think of as our weaknesses may turn out to be our strengths and God will use our weaknesses and our strengths to, for his glory and for really the service of other people. Look at this finely tuned planet that we live on, and you can realize that God has a finely tuned plan for your life and a purpose for you. You are important, you are vital, and you are loved. And it's something to get excited about. If you can grasp that concept, I'm going to ask you to subscribe and to share and to be part of the God story, like Fuzzes, like I am. Welcome to the team. Thanks for joining me, Fuzz. We'll catch you next time. And thank you for listening. More SciTech Talk at MyMichelleLive.com.